Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy and this is my podcast. It's called Other Life because it's where I talk about all the things I don't get to talk about in normal life. So if you're into it, you should definitely subscribe. And if you'd like to talk to other people interested in what I'm interested in or ask me questions or request future topics or guests, please just follow the link in the show notes. Finally, I just want to give a huge thanks to all the donors and patrons. I could not keep this podcast running without financial backers, so I'm very grateful. And I would just say that if you enjoy this podcast or my blog or my videos, please do consider signing up to give a little bit of money each month. It would really help me grow out this project, and it would mean a lot to me. So thanks a lot. Now on to the podcast. Over and out. All right. Here we are. Hi. How are you guys doing today? We're a little worried. <laughs> I'm. Uh, by the way, I'm Jeffrey. And, uh, Good. You are Jeffrey. Yes, introduce yourself. any old Jeffrey. Introduce who, yourself. Who, who, who are you? Run Jeffrey. Are we doing introductions? We're yeah, not. It's good. Introduce you yourself. Should. Jeffrey. That's Jeffrey Anything Miller. you want to say about yourself? Um, I'm Jeffrey Miller. I'm an evolutionary psychology professor at University of New Mexico. And I've been following this pandemic pretty closely for a number of weeks and tweet storming about it pretty relentlessly. Thank you to my followers who haven't uh, run away yet and who are bearing with me about this. I'm Diana Fleischman. I, I was an assistant professor of psychology, but basically the remote teaching is just the first step of our jobs being automated away, and soon I will have no job. <laughs> and I'm Justin Murphy. Anyone listening to this will know who I am, so I don't need to introduce myself. Real quickly, I want to paint a scene for the listeners. Uh, Jeffrey's beard is growing in a little bit more than usual. It has a very kind of uh, apocalyptic kind of uh, connotation to it. It's like I imagine Jeffrey, I fast forward like 10 months from now, we haven't left the house and his beard has grown in even more wildly. <laughs> it's it's very salt and pepper, very prepper. Yes. Very, very rugged looking. Yes. So we should maybe update the listeners on what we're all doing. I haven't left the house in, I think, four days, maybe five now, four, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, as far as I'm concerned, I don't really see any need to leave the house for me anytime in the distant future. So I think I'm going to pretty much like not see anyone in public for who knows how long. I think you guys went to the store recently yeah. uh, and the, the grocery store was fairly crazy, was it? I was in our local Smith's grocery store yesterday and it was kind of a shit show. I mean, it was about four or five times as crowded as I've ever seen it. A lot of kids crying, a lot of old folks looking very nervous and kind of ashen with, with fear. The cashiers were completely overwrought. And, and by the way, right now, as we record this, it's March 14th, Saturday, midday. So things are going to move so rapidly that uh, we should give them the timestamp. Because by the time they're listening to this later tonight or tomorrow, things could be totally different. So that's just yeah. And we're we're in Albuquerque, New Mexico, so you know your your mileage may vary. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people seem to have no idea what to buy. Of course, all the paper goods were gone, as we've all heard. But people are sort of in a kind of um, paradox of choice mode of like, mm-hmm. do I buy like dinty more beef stew? Do I buy canned pineapples? Do I buy bacon? Will that keep? And there was just colossal uncertainty i saw a certain amount of like oh i'll just buy whatever that dude's buying because he seems to know what he's doing yeah i feel like the toilet paper is overhyped like you can do without toilet paper go in the backyard and shit on the ground and wipe it with a leaf like toilet paper i see the appeal but it's not like the most important thing i don't know why there's a fixation on toilet paper in thailand where the pipes actually can't handle toilet paper 
you use your left hand to wipe with your hand and then you wash your hand. Blech. Yeah, it's it's what everybody does though. Uh, but actually coronavirus is not as likely to cause diarrhea as apparently the flu. That's what mm. they say now. It's almost like people think of coronavirus as being some kind of a, uh, but it's not the same everywhere, like in Puerto Rico and other places. Um, but are you saying that people were emulating your buying behavior, Jeffrey? Oh no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't look respectable at all, given my salt and pepper beard. But um, was there some no, guy in camo that everybody was going? No, I think you look more respectable as a survivalist with your, with your beard. I like it. I at least had a list. But yeah, I think apart from that, we haven't left the house in several days. Um, I just heard from my university that spring break for our students is going to be extended another two weeks. So all the faculty are kind of trying to figure out, okay, do we actually have to prep for online teaching or can are we basically on sabbatical until fall term or perhaps even later? So everybody's kind of trying to juggle their actual job duties with their kind of family prepping. And I think there's also a lot of concern about extended families. So like how do you coordinate with parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, distant kids, whatever? Yeah, for sure. I have family in New Jersey who I'm very worried about because, you know, they're very stubborn working class people. And I've been trying to, you know, tell them what's up. And I think, yeah, I don't know. I'm worried because I, I think there's a certain type of man in particular, an older man who's just like, you can't tell them anything, you know, they're not going to stop shaking hands with people. They're not going to stop going to the store. They're just like, they're going to have to, they're going to have to be killed for them to, to like actually, uh, take it seriously. My dad's not a real macho dude, but my father, I think, just kind of started taking it seriously a couple of days ago. I sent my family an email three weeks ago telling them that even if coronavirus is not that bad in the long run, there will be panic buying and there could potentially be store closures and that they should get a couple of weeks worth of food. And my brother and my father both made jokes. My father made a joke about stockpiling booze. And my brother made a joke about um, that he was going to stop licking the doorknobs on the courthouse or something like that. So, uh, yeah, my family also didn't take it especially seriously. And it can be difficult, especially, you know, there are people like, so Jeffrey, his family, they take what he says actually more seriously than what random people say. I think my family, if I tell them something is important, they're less likely to think it's important than if any (laughs) random person, like even on the street, told them so. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, I've circulated a number of um, pretty thorough, fairly carefully written emails to my extended family, partly about here's here's shit you guys should buy, partly here's why I think it's bad to be in the stock market. And I think some of them took it seriously. My mom, I think, did not have a lot of trouble convincing my dad to stop going to their weekly Tai Chi classes. He doesn't like <laughs> so that. So he, does, he doesn't like that anyway. Um, but you know, they kind of have the luxury of living in a suburban community in Ohio that's relatively low density and where a lot of what they need, they can get to easily and nearby. Right. So maybe we should talk a little bit about where, where do you see things playing out in the next like week? I feel like right today is kind of like this really weird critical moment where I feel like the mainstream world kind of just really woke up to it as a whole like maybe two days ago, it seemed to me that would be like a turning point. And now if you look at the graph of cases in a, in the United States, it looks like we're just now at the beginning of the kind of exponential inflection point. But is that your read, first of all? And second of all, 
what 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 are we expecting for the next like five to seven days? So I actually went to go buy some fresh food and to do some errands on Wednesday. And I think the first cases were announced either later that day or on Thursday. So before the first cases were announced in New Mexico, and I gather because New Mexico is not super, super futury with its medical care that we just didn't know that we had cases. Yeah. Um, because every state around us basically had cases before we did officially. And there was not very many people there. So I do think that the panic buying, you know, and there's also amazing video from Costco here and Costco in, in Colorado of people um, stockpiling. So I think that that kind of thing is going to potentially continue. Uh, people are going to stay indoors. Uh, but I also think that there's some people who still don't believe anything. I do wonder about how many kids are on spring break. I know that Florida initially refused to say how many uh, cases that they had because they didn't want to thwart people coming for spring break. So I do think that young people who have this sense of sort of immortality are going to carry on doing whatever they're doing. And I have seen some leaking, you know, there's this person on Reddit who apparently is a, a medical professional who is uh, leaking the plans of the New Mexico hospital uh, of what they're going to do in the case of a full-on uh, pandemic, uh, in the case of many people having coronavirus coming in, and it doesn't actually seem all that substantial. Mm. So I just think that we're going to keep seeing uh, people you know, not being prepared enough, and then also just all kinds of misinformation, although it does seem like the weirdest misinformation has subsided a bit. Do we have any particularly speculative interesting unexpected guesses as the as the things that maybe other people are 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 not not expecting i think one so the people have talked about this a lot already but the presidential race mm. and there are long bets about people who might or might not die certainly politics is a gerontocracy <laughs> so it could be that somebody uh bernie sanders or joe biden or donald trump uh dies or gets significantly ill and even if uh, one of them doesn't die, if they were to be in critical condition, for example, I think, you know, given that there's a lot of conversation about health, this is actually going to have a huge impact on politics. Right. It's kind of interesting to think how uh, someone like Donald Trump catching a case, how it would actually pan out, right? Because if he doesn't die, you know, he could hang on, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't really see Donald Trump like stepping down just because he's hospitalized. Right. So that's kind of interesting. And Joe Biden, I mean, the guy's pretty much already almost dead, seems to be like insisting on carrying on despite anything. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. To, I'm very interested, very worried to see how that plays out. I mean, you could seriously imagine a kind of like what would it do to the to the stock market if, if there was like a mass die off of American leading politicians? Like, think about the, the kind of constitutional crisis that could represent. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So I did a, a Twitter poll a couple of days ago pointing out the ages of key world leaders like Xi in China and Putin in Russia and, and you know, Trump and, and Angela Merkel. And they're all in their 60s, mostly. And they're all pretty vulnerable. And I think you could easily get some geopolitical instability. Like, <clears throat> obviously, these leaders are going to be really t well taken care of by their medical staff. So they probably have a much lower risk of death than other people, but they could get seriously ill. Um, and that could lead to two outcomes. One, they may take it more seriously and, you know, they feel really shitty and it really hits home and that leads to better policies. 
or arguably, you know, they get a little bit ill, they recover, they think it's no big deal, and then they get complacent. Mm. Danny, were you about to jump in or? Yeah, I just, um, I, I'm not sure about any of that, but the, the more I think about it, you know, you did a cool poll, I think, Jeffrey, where you asked people if their ideas about the better and worse systems of governance have changed since uh, coronavirus. And last night we were joking that when Trump got elected, everybody thought he was going to be some kind of super fascist, but he hasn't even really made any federal pronouncements about what people can and should do and about quarantine. And I am not sure about South Korea. I definitely know that we're not going to be able to enforce the kinds of quarantine measures and the kinds of self-containment measures that they did in China. I think South Korea is similar. And when you look at Reddit and other places, you see examples of people, you know, who are confirmed to have coronavirus uh, going to the bar, um, going out in public, going to parades, meeting with other people. And so just, you know, one or two or several people's lack of scruples and morals can have a huge impact. And I just don't see the United States actually enforcing things like that. And I heard in Italy, they're actually, and I, again, I don't know where the source of this is, that they're actually going to have uh, murder charges against people who go out knowingly uh, with coronavirus. And I think that that's actually the kind of enforcement you need to prevent it. Because, you know, people don't intend, you know, the kind of person who just goes out and kills people with coronavirus is probably not the kind of person who would shoot somebody or stab somebody. And so it's just not intuitive that you can kill somebody with a disease. You need that kind of enforcement in order for people to actually take the threat that they're, you know, the threat that they're doing to other people seriously. Yeah, you can have super spreaders who are actually infecting whole conferences like the Biogen conference where there are like 50 cases probably from one person. And if that person had taken, you know, an AR-15 and done a school shooting and killed 50 people, they'd be absolutely infamous. But people think very, very differently about moral culpability in terms of virus spread. For sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with the intuition that I would put my money on the results being worse in the United States than perhaps probably even Italy. Because, you know, Italy, Italy has this kind of weird context as a country where they actually have a relatively weak state compared to uh, the kind of average in in Western Europe. Um, But they also have, you know, this kind of somewhat more statist kind of mentality that people are more comfortable with, you know, strong leadership when, when, when the necessity arises. Whereas, you know, we have this like very federalist decentralized kind of American ethos where we are skeptical of any type of big federal government interventions and so yeah i mean i i I would put my money on things being worse here than than any of the other western countries perhaps i've only been to big italian cities uh, a few times and i've only been to italy a few times and i just remember seeing people chatting in their windows and kids playing in the streets and things and it does seem that there could be more social enforcement more kind of familial and religious enforcement of rules like self-quarantine and self-containment than there would be in a more kind of heterogeneous and faceless kind of society like um, places like New York and San Francisco. Do people in Italy still kind of remember Mussolini and they're kind of like, yeah, it wasn't all bad. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've known a fair number of Italians and they'll, they'll kind of tell you this. They'll, they'll tell you this in private. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of memory of, you know, the trains running on time and, uh, you know, sometimes it's good to, sometimes it's good to be a little fascist. 
Uh-oh. Yeah, well, I think what the problem we have in America... I'm not endorsing that. I'm just saying. The problem we have now in America is kind of the worst of both worlds in terms of democracy plus totalitarianism, but in this kind of fucked up jigsaw pattern. Right. Where you have all the downsides of democratic accountability and po- political leaders worrying about their electability and like how does the stock market reflect their leadership and what will the voters think, Right. But you also have um, leaders who are sort of authoritarian and narcissistic enough not really to listen to the experts Mm. very closely. Um, In China, I think you have kind of the opposite. You have sort of strong central authority that does listen to the experts and is willing to take decisive action eventually, you know, enough to do it. And it doesn't have to worry about what the ordinary voter thinks. So it can think long term and it can actually you know, inconvenience an entire province for the, the, the greater good of the country. Mm-hmm. I've actually seen people on Twitter, not very many, using this as an advertisement for socialism, showing pictures oh, yeah. of empty shelves and saying, this is what capitalism looks like, as, you know, as if people actually don't have enough to eat. So what's happening is that people are stockpiling food. It's not that they don't have enough. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it, it, I think that you're also going to see, you know, I've seen people trying to make hay sort of politically out of this cause and saying this is actually what climate change is going to be like. It's going to be like this and we won't be prepared for it. Or this shows how bad capitalist society is. Or in Italy, um, they've said something to the effect of, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're with, they're not collecting mortgage payments. I, I can't, I don't know the exact policy, but they're trying to suspend how much people have to pay for stuff so that they can um, get along without, without a, a salary, for example, and uh, communist socialists, people like that saying, just do that forever. Just, you know, not pay the mortgage for the rest of your life. Right. And here there's a weird kind of convergence between certain parts of the right and the left, mm-hmm. because like, you know, Curtis Yarvin, for instance, who was going on about this at length uh, at, at the weekend in L.A., was saying basically his suggestion was that Trump should appoint a temporary dictator, more or less, to basically do uh, whatever it takes yep. to, to contain it all. Uh, and I know a lot of leftists who would be pretty cool with that. Right. And they would add, you know, also institute single payer, <laughs> you know, yep. you know, so it's like I do think that there's this weird kind of convergence uh, with respect to these big national risks that are increasingly systemic, whether it be global, you know, cl- whether it be climate change or pandemics, I think there is going to be this kind of gravitational pull towards strong, decisive kind of national leadership. Yeah. Um, I think the I, medical I think, system, sorry, the medical yeah. system is so fucked up right now in the United States. I do think that if somebody was super lefty that was in the White House right now, they could absolutely make some kind of government decree that there is now a public option and everybody's on it. Right. Yeah. And I think that would be better than what we have right now. A lot of people would agree with that, even yeah. libertarian people, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. For here, if anything, if, if I have an edgy take, it's it's actually that I'm somewhat comfortable with the problems of American constitutionalism in, in favor of what's good about it. Like, I, yes, probably more people will die in America because of all the checks and balances and, and, and the gridlock and, and the veto points. But... I don't know, man. I'm not. I'm not quite ready personally to say that. Um, yeah, have done with American constitutionalism in favor in favor of a strong, you know, national response to this sort of thing. You could imagine a bunch of countries kind of centralizing power and being really, you know, dictatorial to deal with the pandemic threat. And then when the pandemic threat is over, where are we? Right. Um, 
I think like what makes America so dope is precisely this kind of chaotic, decentralized uh, federal system, precisely where the federal government can't really do anything over the heads of people who don't want it. I, I kind of like that. Um, so I do wonder where we end up after the pandemic. I'm not so ready to, to trade in kind of weird American constitutional freedoms uh, just in favor of like limiting the, the negative results of this particular crisis. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that a lot of people are thinking about this, you know, mostly as sort of a public health issue. And then the finance people are thinking about it mostly in terms of the stock market and global recession. But I think in the long term, the biggest lingering effects are going to be changes in attitudes towards governance systems right? and what works and what doesn't. And there's going to be a whole lot of commentary for years and years sort of picking apart, okay, which countries did well and why, which Chinese provinces did well, which American cities and states did well. And I think we might actually have kind of a fairly significant recalibration of attitudes towards like which levels of governance should have power to address which kind of issues. For example, I was thinking if you have a global pandemic, would you want potentially World Health Organization or something like that, but more competent and less politically correct? Would you want to give them the authority to shut down all international flights at a certain point and not leave it to individual countries? Yes, yeah, I feel like that's not worth that. You don't want you don't you don't want any worldwide organization that actually has that type of power. I mean, we haven't been able to build an international organization that has that type of power. So there's the question of whether it's even whether you can even engineer it. So far, we haven't been able to. Most international organizations just don't have that kind of teeth, and the the kind of there's no game theoretic equilibrium for it really at the moment. Uh, if there was, though, would we want it? I think not. I think that the, that it would be good to have a system such that there would be a kind of form of governance or state switching that could happen. You know, if certain criteria are met, yes, there's a dictator, there's an authoritarian government, there's martial law. I think that that makes sense. And it, if and only if those those uh, boxes are ticked, that works. But I do think that we'd also be seeing a very different response to this pandemic if it was killing children, killing old people. Mm. And I think that more people would be in favor of something like martial law or dictatorship if it was killing uh, kids, especially because so many people are on social media. I'm not going to call it ageism necessarily, but certainly people are less in touch with their grandparents and their parents and those people older people have less representation in the forms of media that young people commonly consume so it's almost like people are dying that we hardly know exist oh i would go even one step further i think there are a lot of millennials out there who really want the boomers to die yeah uh, you can see it on, on twitter there's there's tons of it on twitter and some of it is joking some of it i think is performative i think a lot of it is actually pretty sincere there's serious resentment towards um, you know, the older generations, which are seen as really fucking over a lot of younger people, whether that's true or not, you can debate that. But I do think that's actually a very widespread feeling. And I don't think it's totally unreasonable either. Yeah. I mean, I think hoping anyone's going to die is unreasonable. Yeah, I don't support the, the, that at all. But yeah. yeah, the whole OK Boomer thing, you yeah. know, it's just like this yeah, derogation, this contempt, this, you know, you're kind of evil and immoral and totally not relevant anymore. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was talking to somebody else about this who is a boomer. And he said, actually, uh, boomers invented shitting on old people. Boomers were really bad to their parents and their grandparents, too. And um, I don't think anybody deserves it, regardless of how they might have been 40 years ago. But, yeah. yeah. 
It's kind of the culmination of the last several years of young people, you know, interacting with extended family at Thanksgiving dinners and having these political arguments over the turkey and being absolutely baffled about why could any older people, whatever, support Trump or any kind of conservative policies. And I think all that lingering resentment is is coming out now in this kind of political partisan ageism. And yeah, it's kind of fun to run the hypotheticals of like, how would people be responding if the highest death rate was among um, 10-year-olds or in women or in, let's say, certain minority ethnicities or um, if it was tearing through, let's say, the gay population like HIV did initially in the early 80s. I think the response psychologically would be really, really different. Mm. Yeah, I think I often think that some of the kind of progressive left, I I hate to characterize a whole group of people, but aggregate suffering in many cases seems to matter less to them than unfairness does. Mm. Um, if, If tens of thousands of people are suffering, it's better than if a few people are suffering because of their identity, religious or ethnic, you know, identity. So it seems like this this virus, it's it's killing the people that they feel are the you know the worst. Uh, they they commit the worst injustices as well. So there is a sort of justice to it as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a that's a very common theme, right? Especially in American history, people generally always have this kind of somewhat messianic kind of attitude towards towards major major crises it's always even among secular people it tends to always be interpreted in this more or less christian frame like if there's a big bad thing that's killing lots of people uh someone probably deserves it and so so then people start kind of backing out a kind of narrative that that makes sense out of it and i think this kind of boomer retribution narrative is precisely that it fits this kind of like christian frame really I think that there's also, you know, in a few months' time, not necessarily in the next few days, uh, there's this kind of discussion probably about utilitarianism because in Italy what I've heard is that they're not trying to save people who they think are not going to make it. Mm. They're sending them they're sending them home. And, you know, the same way that they say there's like no atheists in foxholes, I think there's uh, no non-utilitarian doctors in pandemics. Mm-hmm. People are considering, you know, who that they should save. And I don't know if any of this stuff is going to come out, but, you know, there's going to be um, very poor people, homeless people, elderly people who have no family, uh, who are going to be in hospitals. And doctors are going to implicitly or explicitly uh, make judgments about how much effort to put into saving people based on their social value. Well, if you like eugenics, then shouldn't you, <laughs> shouldn't you prefer a sclerotic American federalism because it's essentially going to be more brutal in that regard? Like smart like smart people, the smarter people, you know, arguably higher IQ people or whatever you want to characterize them as in America have been quarantining for a while, right? Yes. Uh, and so you could argue that if you like eugenics, then you should let it rip a little bit. I'm actually sort of anti, that's kind of more of a social Darwinism. So that's saying that we should allow nature to cull people who are less fit. And I'm actually against suffering in nature and I'm against suffering imposed by incompetent little regimes. What I would really ideally like is that suffering be abolished due to the competence and and good decisions of people rather than just because people happen to die Hmm. uh, because there's not enough infrastructure to support them. So I do agree that um, a a certain thing could have a eugenic effect, um, but I'm not in favor of all eugenic effects, just as I'm not in favor of all death and suffering. Okay. (laughs) Got it. 
But I do, I do think, you know, both Diane and I are into this effective altruism movement, and a big focus of that is so-called scope sensitivity, that you want to track the number of people affected, how long are they affected, how much do they suffer. And I think this pandemic is going to be a wake-up call that we really need to focus on that kind of scope in terms of actually being willing to quantify suffering. I think American political um, system and, and citizens are not really used to the concept of triage, that not everyone's going to make it, and that you have to actually choose priorities and allocate care. And we're going to have to do that, and I don't think we're sort of philosophically or psychologically prepared for it. Yeah, people, whenever you these moral decisions come up, people always act as if resources, including intellectual resources, are basically limitless, that everybody can work on whatever pet project that they want. And I think effective altruists and other people of that ilk are thinking, actually, how do we best allocate resources in order to prevent the most suffering? And it's it's a totally legitimate uh, way of looking at things, especially, you know, if you think about triage and you think about, uh, you know, what's happening right now in terms of of pandemics. Um, You know, we also had some edgy chat among the three of us about whether or not this is going to inspire or prevent kind of bioweapons. Yeah, we've talked about, you know, any um, jihadists or any kind of political extremists or religious fanatics are looking at this pandemic and kind of writing their own playbook about how how to weaponize this in the future. Like, how could you do something like this? but intentionally and in a way that spread even faster and that was harder to control. So the effective altruism movement has been terrified of bioterrorism for, you know, at least a decade. And I think having this sort of live example of what could happen just naturally will inspire potential future artificial pandemics that could, could be way worse actually. Um, so the, who is this, I can't remember his last name, Michael something or other, this guy who was on Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan was saying, is there any evidence that this is an escaped virus from some kind of laboratory in Wuhan? And, uh, the, the epidemiologist was saying, actually mother nature is much more clever and we could never engineer a virus like this that would be able to do what this is doing. And it does seem that way. It does seem like that's you know, premature to consider this is a problem, but I don't think it's going to be premature forever. All of these technologies are going to develop and uh, i think that it would be a very strange thing if china released a virus that was um i mean this is another thing that actually people got into on twitter there is some evidence it's very poor evidence and it's a very small sample size but it makes sense that this virus some ethnicities are more susceptible some races are more susceptible to this virus um than others and which are more susceptible people were saying that uh, asian men more susceptible but it could just be due to the fact that Asian men are smoking a lot, like in China, okay. um, like something like 30% of Chinese men smoke cigarettes. So that might be why they were more mm-hmm. susceptible also. You know, maybe silver lining is Chinese people will smoke less. That would be great. Um, and there's some evidence that, um, you know, black people are less susceptible to this particular uh, virus. Um, you know, who knows what's actually happening in Africa right now, but people have said that there's a very low number of cases. Uh, who knows if that's just because they don't have the infrastructure to test or if it's really that way. And, you know, it is entirely possible that that could be the case, in which case, you know, we're going to have to embrace that and figure out 
what kinds of strategies to employ on the basis that it actually, you know, some people are actually uniquely susceptible to this virus. I don't think you mean, though, that we should embrace that. No, we should embrace, <laughs> we should embrace the idea <laughs> No, we shouldn't be like, thanks, virus, <laughs> for killing Asians right, right. <laughs> more than black people. You mean accept, accept, accept realities, yeah, yeah, accept we should, realities, yeah, accept if they're reality. true, but we don't know at all that this is true. Uh, no, there's only, possible. there's a study of the end of like 24. It's possible. Right. And um, they were looking, I think, at the immunological reaction in the lungs of these people. And this has been like circulating. And I'm not sure, you know, when the numbers get higher... Uh, I think we're going to know. I don't think that people are going to say anything about the ethnic makeup of people who who die and don't die uh, for a very, very long time because that's just not done anymore. Yeah, but I mean the chance that different human populations are exactly equally susceptible to any given virus is virtually zero. I mean there will be differential susceptibility. It might not matter a whole lot and we won't know anything about it until the future. But even that I think could also spark worries about bioterrorism where you know extremists and fanatics would eventually realize oh yeah you could have a virus that that kind of hits one group harder than another and if that's what they want to do then it kind of opens the door for that being part of their strategy and it's not necessarily just because of that it could also be due to you know like lifestyle choices the first and only person i've heard talk about uh, for example the effect of uh, obesity uh, on the susceptibility of this virus was this epidemiologist who was talking to Joe Rogan. Uh, whereas I've heard quite a few people talk about the effect of um, smoking on the Chinese population um, in terms of susceptibility of this virus and a lot of stuff about um, older people. Another thing that I am thinking about is pregnancy. So um, back in, I think it was the 1918 Spanish flu, there was a surge I can't remember exactly the numbers, but there was an increase in the rate of schizophrenia, for example, and I think some other mental illnesses, uh, because there is some evidence that if a woman gets a viral infection, um, her offspring are more likely to have certain kinds of uh, disorders, you know, if they have those genetic predispositions. And I do wonder about what kids who are currently gestating are going to be like um, if their moms get coronavirus. Yeah, I don't have an answer to that. Jeffrey, what is it? What do you remember? What the increase in schizophrenia was after the flu outbreak? I don't remember. Back back in the day when I worked on sort of evolutionary genetics of schizophrenia, I do remember that sort of second trimester infectious disease does generally increase schizophrenia risk, and that's a pretty general pattern across history and across cultures. Yeah. So there might be all kinds of weird lingering side effects you know there's been concern about how will this affect male fertility how will it affect lung function long term um how would it affect babies and it's so such early days yet we don't even know what the sort of aggregate suffering from those effects will be yeah we have no idea what it will be long term and i actually looked this up today and the uh there's a cdc website was a whole bunch of we don't know we don't know we don't know yeah hmm I think the House just passed a bill. Did you see that by any chance? It's not clear if it's going to go through the Senate, but um, it's for families, and it's got a bunch of features for, to try to make it economically more, um, you know, palatable for working families. And one of the one of the features is halting uh, interest payments on student loans. Yep. This is another reason why I think a lot of millennials are actually like weirdly happy about all of this because they're kind of hoping that it's going to it's going to kind of 
wreck the economy in such a way that there'll be, um, you know, some, some gifts given to, to poor and working people, like possibly canceling debt. A lot of people are kind of like rooting for that possibility. Um, so yeah, it is kind of, there are these other weird kind of economic incentives that are intergener that are causing like kind of intergenerational conflict. Yeah. Um, I think university students might, I mean, who knows exactly what's going to happen and how these problems are going to get solved, but it is possible that everybody's going to have to kind of repeat a semester, if not more, of university. Mm-hmm. And if this is anything like the Spanish flu and people, there's been huge controversy about whether it is like this, like the 1918 flu pandemic, um, there will be a resurgence again in the fall. So people will go back to university in the fall and that's several months away. And who knows actually if people are going to end up going back to school in the autumn or not. It could be a colossal intergenerational transfer of wealth because if the stock market really tanks and stays tanked for a long time and a lot of older people are dying and then, you know, offspring inheriting, middle-aged offspring inheriting wealth. And if the government does something about college costs and loan forgiveness, and if the real estate market eventually drops a lot, then young people will be able to afford houses who didn't before. And a lot of you know elderly people who owned houses, those will be up for sale. I think what's going to happen is in the coming weeks and months, as everyone's sort of hunkered down at home, people are going to start thinking through all these unanticipated side effects, you know, economic, social, cultural, generational. And there, there are going to be so many of them that, you know, I hope there will be sort of thousands of interesting blogs about just how fragile a lot of our systems are to this sort of disruption. Yeah, that's for sure. It is kind of interesting to think how realistically the American government is going to look after this. Because, yeah, you have to, you just have to wonder what someone like Trump will do. Obviously, he's not handling it well at all. He's kind of like, you know, a day late and a dollar short on everything. But he's kind of so crazy that you could imagine... You, you could imagine that he does come through with some sort of like crazy, powerful, somewhat fascistic public health plan. And man, it's just. Oh, I so doubt it. I think. mean, it seems, you know, from, from I saw his talk, his, his address yesterday and he had, what is it? The CEOs, I can't remember, mm. but Target and Walmart and all these people there. Uh, I, I, it seems to me that Trump cares about the market over everything else. And he was so excited today when he was wearing um, a hat to cover his somewhat swollen face that uh, that the market had increased by like nine and a half points while he was giving his address uh, because he was signaling. Actually, Jeffrey was the person who I was like, how, why did the market go up so much? I can see like he's talking about how he's pals with all these uh, these companies. And what did you say? Well, I said, you have to understand this Trump speech is not um, to inform citizens. This Trump speech is a signal to investors. It's a signal to professional investors. And by having a bunch of corporate CEOs up there standing next to him, Trump is basically kind of under the radar saying, uh, moral hazard, we are prepared to bail out companies that get in trouble. We are friends with these companies. And of course, Investors respond to that signal. Investors recognize he is speaking to us. He is reassuring investors and companies and shareholders that come hell or high water, we are Trump's priority. 
and he's going to prop us up whatever happens to the rest of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why millennials are like, yeah, fuck off and die. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's like, these are the same motherfuckers who won out in the bailouts from the the financial crisis. So it's like, I don't know. I never think I don't wish death on anyone. I think that's a terrible way to think about anyone. Um, but the intergenerational conflict, it it's actually, it's kind of, I have some sympathy with the, the kind of glib nonchalance of, of millennials because they're kind of just thinking like you reap what you sow motherfuckers, you know, like, cause older people do vote more. Older people do actually have more influence on the, the political system over the past several decades. And yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I think uh, people have just watched the older generations do quite well through political maneuvering over the past few decades and millennials on the other hand have kind of adapted and assumed there's never really going to be anything for them like most young people i know count on nothing right they kind of assume social security won't be there they assume you know they're going to be in debt bondage for the rest of their life and you know in a weird way they're just kind of like you know let the system burn if it if it means like a million old people die they reap what they sow and i don't think that's a good attitude but i am kind of like there is this actual intergenerational warfare where like someone like Trump is actually more concerned about protecting not just the wealthy, the wealth and income is, is one cleavage, but the age is also a cleavage there. That's, that's his boomer cronies, you know? Yeah, and, and you're positing something that we could probably never find out in a, in a survey really, because nobody would admit to having these, uh, these kinds of attitudes. I also think that he briefed everybody who spoke and honestly, he didn't make any sense to me. It was, scary how little sense he made to me because i've tried i mean when i was in the uk i could ignore this presidency a lot and here i've had a little more trouble ignoring it but i do think that he briefed everybody uh the epidemiologists and 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 everybody that was giving mini speeches with him to talk about how important the private sector is and how the private sector is actually going to see us through and that i think was another way that he was trying to signal to the market but yeah i don't think that he would do anything fascistic because it would screw up the market. Yeah, that's a good point. Also, I think there's a very good chance he has it. <laughs> I mean, we don't know for sure, but... I he mean, got tested today. But the results aren't out, are they? No, 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 the results aren't out. I actually don't know how long the test comes to, takes to come back. And then, you know, you you and I were debating about whether or not they would actually... And a bunch of people were debating about whether or not um, anybody would actually know for sure what the result was. If he's positive, we might they might just never say... No, I think if it's positive, he's going to say, okay, now it's really important that we find treatment for this. <laughs> yeah, and, and I should mention, you know, no, nobody in this house is sort of a knee-jerk, never-Trumper. I think we're all kind of patchwork centrists who have pretty mixed and complicated views, and we've all... How dare I, you call me a centrist? And <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what the fuck Justin is at the moment. Radical left and radical right, motherfucker. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you're just the embodiment of the horseshoe. Um, but I think... Uh, and we've all avoided even mentioning much about Trump either way on Twitter and social media because we think it's that's just such a polarized, stupid thing to, to argue about, and we're not interested. It's not a very interesting thing. However, I would say over the last couple of weeks, it's really hit home to me that the profound cost of having someone in charge who's not a realist, who relies on rhetoric, propaganda, influence, charisma to get everything done and who thinks you can kind of out-talk and out-charisma a problem like this. That's The virus doesn't give a shit about propaganda. The virus just is. And 
And this is where I think governance systems and individual leaders who are actually on the ball and are pragmatic and realist and take global catastrophic risks seriously, I think they're shining. And I think the people of the world are paying very, very close attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. Charisma is no substitute for competence. I always thought that unless something like this happened, you know, Trump was divisive, nothing was ever going to get passed, nothing was going to get done, the government would basically be frozen until he was gone because nobody was going to want to do anything that he said. Um, you know, the, the, certainly the left wasn't going to do anything that he said. There would be tons of roadblocks um, in his path. Uh, but now it doesn't seem like it's, it's just a terrible thing to have an incompetent person in charge. And it's it's scary. Um, and, you know, you, you, you guys both told me about this. I didn't know. He said that Google had made some kind of uh, coronavirus tracking website and that it was going to be up in a couple of days and he had never spoken to Google. Like these kinds of things are j- just terrifying. And Pence, I also had hardly ever heard him speak. He is maybe even worse than Trump. He's like incompetent and uncharismatic. I mean, I'll push back against that a little bit in that having charisma in a time of national crisis can actually be really powerful, right? The critique, I think the critique of him is more the, the administrative incompetence is obvious and, and severe and for this sort of situation, a, a serious problem. But if he used his charisma to push people in the right direction, people would be cool with that. And then you would see like the powerful effects of charisma, right? Like if he, you know, if he, if he used his, you know, kind of uh, charismatic charm to convince like uh, uneducated Americans to, you know, like quarantine and wash their hands more and that kind of shit. Uh, then I think a lot of the like educated people would be like, "Oh, Trump's charisma is coming in handy." Working in, he's electively charismatic. I'm not. I'm not at all saying that he's charismatic to to everybody, uh, but it's and he's not charismatic to me. It's just obvious that he's charismatic because people overlook all his foibles. Even people who are very religious, very family values, very trad. Uh, are willing to overlook the fact that he's had God knows how many wives and um, and affairs and and his licentiousness and everything else uh, because of his his charisma. So I'm just inferring that he's very charismatic. Yeah, I think what you really need in a crisis like this is sort of a triumvirate where there's like a a PR figurehead, like a Corona czar, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, communicating directly to the public about, hey, everybody, here's what to do, right? Who's like who's very reassuring and who projects strength and, you know, gravitas and calmness. And then second, you want kind of a, an Aspie genius behind the scenes, actually running numbers and thinking about scope and kind of a, like a Nick Bostrom or a Robin Hanson kind of figure. Hey, hey, Dwayne, the rock Johnson, if you're listening to this, uh, Jeffrey Miller really wants to run your presidential <laughs> campaign. And he's definitely listening to this He's down. <laughs> just, just call us. We, we, we're not hard to find. Thank you for that public service announcement. (laughs) And then third, I think you need somebody who really understands the federal bureaucracy and how to get things done and how to build partisan bridges and actually, you know, pass emergency legislation. You need a government insider. And Trump, bless his heart, doesn't really have any of those three skill sets. Like he doesn't really have the ability to reassure troubled citizens. He doesn't really have the genius to come up with original policy or, or to understand data. And he doesn't really know how to work Washington mm. effectively. So I, yesterday I was drafting a little possible piece on 
the relationship between ideology and uh, these sorts of threats because it's actually quite surprising. A lot of people might not, might not know this, but uh, national responses in terms of public opinion towards these types of threats is surprisingly endogenous to the partisanship of the presidency at the time. So right now, Republicans are much more skeptical of the coronavirus threat than Democrats are. But people don't realize how much of that is in, is driven by who the president is and the, the, the voters or the respondents' uh, partisan identity themselves. Because if you look at um, uh, SARS, I guess it was, or whichever one was the, the big one under Obama, the relationship was reversed. So Republicans were more concerned about that threat than than Democrats were. So it's kind of interesting because the, 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 there's, not a clear, there's not a very clear or obvious relationship between ideology and sensitivity to these threats. Uh, it's largely conditional on who the president is. Yeah, Josh Tiber, who has written about this as well, that conservatives tend to be um, more disease-sensitive and disgust-sensitive than liberals, has said, you know, we would have never predicted actually the direction of the political response to this right. based on all the research that's been done and discussed, you know, right. which is just absolutely par for the course when it comes to psychology literature you can't predict anything with psychology other than behavioral genetics and sometimes evolutionary psych but i think that it's yeah it's it's uncanny um really how much the 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 sort of right wing people have have doubted this threat especially because it includes a possible kind of xenophobic component well it doesn't mean that the psychology is is not predictive it's just more complex and conditional than 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 is uh, convenient right so like it's still consistent with what we're observing it's just that it's it's conditioned on the partisanship of leaders so for instance you know an interesting implication might be that if your city's mayor declares an emergency and says this is something we really need to pay attention to and the mayor is a democrat then uh, all of a sudden it could reverse yeah. right so it's more conditional on what coalition you want to signal you belong in than it is on any individual difference that you might have as a democrat or a republican yeah that's potentially. right yeah yeah the bizarre thing is we've seen kind of a reversal of people's intuitions about how pandemics work i mean 20 years ago you know with the rise of the internet and then social media um whenever any story you know became popular it it, it went viral and the you know, the metaphor was the way social media works is sort of analogous to the way natural pandemics work. But now I think it's reversed. I think people actually have like the spread of fake news and social media virality as the kind of basic model of how stuff in general spreads. And they're kind of modeling the virus on that. Right. And I think conservatives have actually responded, at least they were two to three weeks ago. They were treating the real viral pandemic as if it was piggybacking on fake news about the pandemic mm. and as if it wasn't actually happening it was just a sort of side effect of digital panic yeah that's a really good point it's almost as if you know as you said that before diana that conservatives have this uh they should in theory have and and in many ways observably they do have greater sensitivity to something like pathogen threat it's almost as if that's been sort of uh, run through all of these like social filters so that the, their actual sensitivity to pathogen threat now loads mostly on the, the 
the threat of like liberals or something like that. It's like they they see the uh, they see the liberals as the pathogen threatening America, and so that's actually more sensitive. Like that's more salient than an actual pathogen <laughs> that that is now on the agenda. Yeah, but you also see this on the left in terms of the way that the left has talked about safe spaces and ideological contagion and sort of guilt by association and we have to shut down free speech because it spreads bad ideas. They have their own sort of intuitive epidemiology that's now based almost entirely on the way that ideas spread rather than actual viruses. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think it's been funny and interesting to watch cleavages and how people respond. You know, like it's not, it's at a, at a more, you know, fine grain level than kind of national ideological cleavages. It's interesting. Like, Joe Rogan, for instance, is a bit of a denier still. Do you know this? Like, even after that interview he did with that guy. Really? Um, I saw a clip on YouTube the other day, after, like the day after he did that interview with that guy, where he basically said he wasn't changing his behavior at all. Wow. Hugging people, handshaking people, going to going to public events. Um, I, and I thought that was very interesting. It's, it's often not what you would expect. In the jiu-jitsu community, there's this really interesting, very interesting kind of debate going on at the moment where about half of the jiu-jitsu community, half of the, you know, the, the, the pros who are, you know, very influential on social media and all of that, very widely respected, about half of them are closing their gyms immediately, saying this is the obvious choice. And another notable subset of, of, of kind of opinion leaders in jiu-jitsu, quite smart people, quite, you know, um, competent, responsible people who uh, run their gyms and run their communities and have many students are choosing to stay open and it's just kind of fascinating because it's it's um it's like i don't know it's i think what's kind of going on is that we now have as a nation this kind of truly exogenous shock there aren't that many truly exogenous shocks like most problems or things or stimuli that we are forced to confront are themselves these kind of weird um like culturally engineered dubious debatable things you know what i mean but now we have this sudden novel truly exogenous shock and people are pretty much left to their own devices to make their own judgments about what to do. And I just find it very fascinating to watch like what are the criteria or what are the factors that predict different people going in different directions and, and people are interpreting it and in, very differently and making very different behavioral judgments. Yeah. There's no kind of coherent message about what we should be doing and how we should be reacting. And I think it's very weird to live in this civilization where there is no coherent message about how to respond to something that's so important. But that kind of jujitsu comment, unless you were going to say something, Jeffrey. I was going to go off on a tangent about sort of overly macho responses to pandemic threat, but mm. feel free to go in a different direction. <laughs> I was just going to say that that jujitsu comment kind of leads us into, you know, what's going on with us personally. So for me, I, you know, we, we just made some new friends and I was excited about seeing them more often. And now I'm kind of making a judgment call because uh, my new friends have children. Uh, those children have been in school. Are Some of our new friends are into jujitsu and they're going to carry on going to jujitsu. So do I still hang out with these people? Do I not hang out with them? Um, I'm not that worried about myself, but I do think that there is a very, um, you know, there's still for somebody my age, um, a two out of a thousand uh, chance uh, of death. And there's still like a, you know, quite, quite high probability, higher than I'd like, 5% maybe, that I would end up in a hospital. 
We don't actually know what kinds of fatality rates there's going to be um, when the hospitals get full. And I haven't lived here in Albuquerque that long, but I am not that trusting of how the medical system is going to work here um, when it's under a lot of uh, stress. My experience with doctors here hasn't been fantastic uh, thus far anyway. Um, so, you know, I'm just making decisions about how much am I going to go out? What am I going to do? Uh, if I'm going to socialize with people, I think maybe socializing with people in parks. Um, but I wanted to hang out with um, some friends and they all have kids and I know that their kids would end up running around together and um, rolling around together. And so that would be unsafe. They probably don't want to hang out that way. And so I feel like I've lost some kind of socializing and uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to be able to do. Although I'm not somebody who gets cabin fever like like Justin does. Well, in a weird way, I'm, I'm not having cabin fever. I have this kind of interesting... Uh, attitude towards it or response towards it because if i am able to go out in public then i do every day feel a pretty strong drive to like go out to a cafe or go out to a bar or whatever i do i do like doing that but now that i've decided to just basically consider all those things not options it's like i've shifted into a different equilibrium where i don't i'm not suffering at all yet like i don't feel at all any lack whatsoever from not going out anywhere in the past few days and in a weird way it's actually been quite i think it's actually elevated my my happiness and mood and quality of life because it's removed a lot of decision fatigue you know like usually when you when the whole world is your oyster and you know i don't have kids yet i can go anywhere i want any day uh you know i i i probably spend at least 30 minutes of every day just thinking what cafe should i go to to work in or like do i want to grab a bite to eat here or do i want to grab a bite to eat there you know these stupid decisions that you I uh, have to make when you like go out and about the world. All of that has been removed from my my agenda, and it's actually makes me feel really relaxed and happy. And I've just been like, you know, doing <coughs> doing stuff around the house in a weird way. I've kind of been enjoying it. There's no FOMO either, you know. No FOMO. That's right. Yeah, absolutely, really good. Not to mention, about a year ago, I made a major kind of life wager in going all in on internet communications, and uh, that that uh, choice seems to be kind of uh, weirdly well vindicated at the moment. It survived well, yeah. Yeah, I think we're we're all kind of pivoting a little bit into uh, realizing that actually online communication in many ways is more resilient than most of the ways we've been brought up to communicate, like in-person teaching and going to science conferences and collaborating in person with people. And as long as the electricity grid doesn't go down and telecoms and the internet still work, it's it's weird that like we're doing physical distancing, but we're not really doing internet distancing. And in fact, I've had more good phone calls recently with family and friends because of the pandemic that I have in previous months. Yeah. My mom and I are really close right now because I'm <laughs> the person that reassures her and, and she kind of trusts what I say. But, um, you know, I, I, we were supposed to go see my family. Uh, if things had all gone according to plan right now, I'd be playing with my niece and nephew. And so, you know, that's all sad that I can't do that. And I'm not sure when we'll be able to do that again. And it also puts a lot of other stuff into the flux, but I have to say, I'm really super, super grateful that we all live together, we all can socialize with one another, that we have um, a safe, comfortable place where we can really hunker down and that we have uh, enough ramen to get us through a few weeks. And then we can record as many podcasts as we want with all this time inside the house. Yeah, we have a lot of plans of projects and stuff and you know, maybe you guys will be able to enjoy some of the stuff that we're going to be putting out since a lot of you guys are not going to be doing much outside the house soon either. Yeah, if you're listening to this and you're quarantined, uh, you know, write us a message. Tell us what you're doing. Uh, 
if you want to hear more of these podcasts or you want us to talk about something in, in particular, let us know. We're open. You're quarantined right now. <laughs> quarantined ASMR. Yeah. Self-containment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we are coming up on an hour. Um, if you guys want to, I don't know, we could wrap it up if you want. If you have any uh, lingering thoughts or ideas you wanted to float. Sure. Well, just sure. to follow up on Diana's comment. Yeah, I, I was just imagining like how nuts we would be driving each other if it was just the two of us, you know, <laughs> living together. Like it would be really hard. So if you're out there listening and I, I think it's actually optimal to like live with about three to six people in a house. And I think um, particularly couples who only have like themselves or themselves and a, like one or two kids, that's going to be really, really hard. I think big communal houses are going to suffer because everybody's going to get this. Um, People are going to be asking their friends weird questions that you were never usually reserved for like sexual partners. They'd be like, so where have you been? Who you been hanging yeah. out with? Have you been talking to anybody who was coughing? You know, it's going to be weird for people to, to, and when Jeffrey says that we would be driving each other nuts, what he really means is, is that if I'm alone with him for a really long time and there's no one else to socialize with, I'm super extroverted. He's fairly introverted. I just stir up shit just to do something social and it's really not his fault. He's actually very kind to me. She's the queen of recreational shit testing. Recreational if she, if shit she testing. If she doesn't get enough Is my Olympic sport. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that we're here too, also. It's yeah. definitely much better than if we were cooped up in our own house. In yeah. Who knows where. Although I will say, you know, just a kind of a idea for you guys to mm. think about is that there's some evidence, the last thing I read, that people who lived in the same household, there was like a 10... 15, 20% rate of transmission. It is possible to live in the same household with people and not get it uh, and quarantine them off. We have had extensive discussions about how we would quarantine and how we would make uh, passageways for um, Justin and his wife and, and me and, and Jeffrey in case uh, one of us was to uh, to catch coronavirus so as to not spread it to everybody in the household. So that's also something that you guys uh, should right. consider. How would you guys, uh, you know, if, if you have a big enough house or if you don't have a big enough house, uh, can you go somewhere? I have a friend right now she thinks that she had coronavirus and uh, because her mother is elderly uh, she's living in a friend's van and she has a very mild case she thinks she might just have the flu and um, you know and I think that that's the kind of thing that you have to think about is you know how are you going to where are you going to go uh, and and if you're in a big city or um, someplace where there's some kind of social disorder very likely to happen. Think about going somewhere else. Think about camping out, not camping out, but going somewhere um, more rural with a friend, somewhere with good internet. Those are all things that you should consider right now. Yeah. And also tell tales and write them down and then put it in a book and maybe it'll be called the Decameron version two. <laughs> the Decameron, the sequel. That's right. We could have a World War Z, which is a great book, by the way. World War Z, um, I know that... Uh, that uh, Justin's wife Aria is reading a book about a pandemic right now. And uh, I don't know how much people feel like reading about a pandemic when there is one going on, but uh, there's a lot of really interesting, um, you know, fiction out there about this kind of stuff. I love world war Z though. Yeah. Well, Diane and I actually saw the author Max Brooks who wrote world war Z give a talk at our, our zombie apocalypse medicine meeting about a year and a half ago at Arizona state. Great guy, amazing talk, really foresightful about, the many, many side effects of a pandemic on society. Highly recommend World War Z, the book, not the movie. But I think, yeah, we should think about maybe future podcasts that have to do specifically with like how we're prepping sort of physically, socially, culturally. 
Um, and I think it's also good to kind of encourage people in this time of crisis to like make recordings, write things down, document, take photos, take video. This will be a time that is very, very interesting to future generations. That's true. That's a good point. It's a good time to start a podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, real quick before we wrap it up, one last thing. Do you, do you guys know the etymology of the word quarantine? Remind us, Justin. It comes from um, Jesus' 40 days in the desert. Yeah, Quora meaning forty. Okay, well, we I don't want to. I don't want to be quarantined anymore if it's Christian. Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, it's it's fitting because we're in the desert, and there are worse places to be than than in the desert. Absolutely, during a pandemic. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with me, guys. Thanks for having us as your guests, especially since we are your only possible in person guests. <laughs> <laughs> Stay safe. Yes, Bye. maybe if you guys want, we could do more um, quarantine casts uh, for maybe Jeffrey's channel if he wants yeah. or. For anything else, um, if you're listening to this and you're interested in this, uh, you know, pandemic virus talk from our bunker, uh, let us know if you let, let let me know. Send me a message if if you think this is cool and you want us to do more. Uh, if I don't get any messages, then maybe we won't do more. For real, but we probably will do. We'll probably be back on at some point. We and can then talk about other future. stuff too. Yeah, that's true. We know other things sometimes. Yeah. That's true. In fact, we probably should do one in the not too distant future where we don't talk about the pandemic. We talk about like fun stuff and other stuff to get our minds off it because it's definitely starting to fuck with my head a bit. The whole threat. I know it is for Arias. I don't know about you guys. No, I'm just feel really grateful to to be here every day. Honestly, uh, I was living in the UK for the past eight years, and I was living in an apartment, you know, and I had uh, a, a, a with other people, and I would be miserable um, there right now, uh, not being able to go out. And living in a tiny room. Yeah. I think we might want to do a podcast about how do you actually use time at home in a sort of disciplined and goal-directed way. Because I think some people are going to think, woohoo, don't have to go to work for a few weeks. And it's going to be like staycation and just uh-huh. eat potato chips and watch trashy YouTube. And other people will use it as, as sort of a mini sabbatical and like take a step back from life and rethink and be disciplined and like work out and read serious nonfiction and whatever. And I'm going to try to do more of the latter than the former, but mm. um, I think it'd be fun to talk about strategies for making the best use of this strange, you know, quarantine time. That's there a great opportunities. idea. Yeah, yeah. We could talk, there talk are a lot about that in this, in this bad crisis. Yeah. All right. Thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. If you thought that was cool, then don't forget to subscribe and it would be even cooler if you left a review i'd appreciate that and yeah just to learn more about what i'm up to you can check out theotherlifenow.com that's all and i will see you around the internet